Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us Friday mornings for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Hello, it's good to be with you again. I appreciate that. Last week we, oh, before I, uh, before I even start the quote-unquote hard news section, I was just thinking after I heard of the um, a passing of Yaakov Neaman uh, this week, who uh, I certainly thought was a great man, I would assume you went very, very way back with him. I'd known him for a long time, and we were very close friends, and a man I greatly respected, who achieved much, not only becoming one of the most prominent attorneys, but also a minister in various capacities, um, I think even a finance, and um, uh, active in, the, I think, Department of Justice uh, as well. Yeah. Um, so he, he had a very uh, storied career and unfortunately passed away at a still relatively young age. And um, I don't know, there was something, I, I, the, most of the time when I saw him, it was in Hebron, you know, Shabbos Parshas Chayesara, and he was somebody, even though that he held, you know, lofty positions in the government of Israel, did not hesitate to really reach out to all Israelis, and I'm sure that's the feeling you got uh, when you saw him, uh, you know, at times as well. Absolutely. So he, I was at his home for Kiddush and for lunch and Shabbat many times, and uh, he, um, it was always very warm and friendly, people uh know him will attest to that and uh he suffered in recent uh, period but he uh, was really a dynamic force in israeli life no question he will be missed all right we'll talk about the house and senate in a moment but before we get to what happened yesterday and in general what happened this week from the start of the uh, the uh, latest session of congress we had an opportunity last week to discuss um, you know, some organizations, some high profile, you might argue, and others may argue as well, not so high profile Jewish organizations who are taking a slightly different stand than the majority of Congresses, than what we believe the majority of the Jewish community is. I'm referring in this case to a full page ad that was placed in the New York times, literally thanking, that's what it says as thank you, president Obama and secretary Kerry. You are true friends of the state of Israel and history will applaud your courage in addressing the conflict in both practical and moral terms. What is your reaction when you see something like that in print in a high-profile news source? Well, I, I don't give it more attention. I try to uh, remember, I mean, people are entitled, it's a free country, and they can be entitled to their point of view, but the fact is that they represent a minority view that the media loves to emphasize and give them coverage, especially the New York Times, uh, in the most distorted and, and misrepresentative way. And their message was clearly repudiated yesterday by the members of the House and will be by the members of the Senate uh, in overwhelming numbers. The, the ability to, to uh, get attention because you can spend a lot of money and because you get the press will always go for man bites dog stories where somebody is critical of Israel and uh, purport to build them up and try to make them something they aren't. Uh, is uh, unfortunately part of the fake news stories of the day. You, you know, and, yeah, I'm sorry. And it's true of the secular media, and it's often true of the Jewish media. You know I'm not arguing with you, but it, it, it makes it so difficult to make, to it, it makes it even more difficult to make that case when the centerpiece of their claim is that former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak 
praised the speech, called it powerful, and said the majority of the world and of Israelis agree with him. Is, is it even conceivable to say that the majority of Israelis agree with him? Well, it depends on what part of the speech. I mean, I don't think anybody who reads the whole thing uh, will necessarily come to that conclusion. Uh, there are parts of it, and there are views. That, I mean, to say that they advocate a two-state solution, the majority of Israelis would support a two-state solution. The question is the definition of what a two-state solution. Would they accept the fact that the uh, the, not to refer to the million Jewish refugees or 900,000 Jewish refugees or to talk about Jerusalem as occupied territory, to talk about the Kotel and all of our holy places as occupied territory. No, I don't think that those are things that the majority of Jews. So you have to, uh, you can't just make blanket statements about uh, a 72-minute speech in which there was uh, a content that uh, certainly would would be subject to legitimate criticism, as you heard yesterday in the, in the Senate, and the, the giving the energy and the encouragement to the BDS movement, uh, which this uh, which the speech and the resolution uh, did. Uh, the speech and resolution are obviously not the same things, but they but they tie together. And the speech was to vindicate the or explain the abstention vote uh, uh, by the United States at the United Nations on the previous Friday. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, the, the ability to just to refer to the statement of a previous prime minister, as we know in Israel, uh, leaders are not hesitant to speak right. uh, even before they know the facts. Um, look, it's a big victory that the house vote yesterday, and this may sound silly, but I got to ask you because you follow this more closely than anybody else. 342 to 80. That's the vote. But 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 am I right that generally a House vote that is portrayed as, you know, pro or anti-Israel is usually even more uh, lopsided than that? Or or this or this follows along the usual formula? Well, the first resolution uh, was three ninety nine to zero. And the House, the Senate was, uh, I think, 88 senators wrote a letter, uh, signed on, and uh, we had the messages to the president before saying, don't go to the United Nations, don't do this. The problem here is that it became a test for the administration, so the president weighed in, as he is right to do, and uh, urged Democratic members not to support it. So the fact that you had so many, I think, is more remarkable than the fact that you didn't get others. I mean, You there? Malcolm, did we lose you? All right, we will try to reconnect with Mr. Honeline. Not quite sure what happened there. We will try to reconnect and... uh, and, uh, Just a moment. Okay, we've reconnected with Mr. Malcolm Honeline. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, and so that the, the a lot of pressure was brought to bear by the administration uh, and others to to uh, say that this would be repudiation of the president, and then they made this about two states, uh, two-state solution, and um, I think it, it got distorted in the process, and uh, Nancy Pelosi voted against the resolution, but so did uh, people like Greg Meeks and uh, some others who we would have hoped would have not and would have abstained or something, but... Um, uh, I, I think we shouldn't read too much into the numbers when you know all the internal machinations that go into it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the hundred, as you point out, the hundred or, or more than a hundred, whatever exact number of Democrats 
uh, that voted for it uh, should be acknowledged, and that's a good point. And anybody, and nonetheless, and there may be, frankly, people in this audience who are in Nancy Pelosi's district, not a bad idea to contact her office. And if you want to express things one way or the other, go ahead and do so. Well, I think we should also acknowledge those who, who came out in support. Sure. And by the way, yesterday Chuck Schumer endorsed the Taylor Force uh, Act uh, uh, um, bill, which deals with the Palestinian funding for, for terrorists and incitement uh, and recognition, you know, that they allocate over $300 million in their budget to, the, to pay for uh, terrorists. And the more you kill, the more you get and, and pay for those who were killed the families of those, uh, of those people, as well as for the terrorists themselves for the years that they are in prison, which uh, many people don't realize that this is actually part of the budget. And though they funded it through the PLO, you know, but they give them the money and it's and it's officially done. So now there is this uh, Taylor Force Act that would cut the funding and uh, until they, they end this glorification, which, by the way, is in the bill in, in both in U.N. Security Council resolution and was in the president's the, by the secretary's speech. Uh, about the the funding of of terrorism incitement, but they don't say Palestinian. They make it a sound as if that's both. The only reference, specific reference, are to settlements and to Israel. But in the Security Council resolution, they talk about these issues, but make it generic. Right. So it sounds like terrorism on both sides. On both sides, everybody. You know. uh, I'm so I'm confused on the timetable. Today's Senate vote's going to be on the UN resolution. That's today. That's the one, yes. The, and, and then, the companion bill to the House. Right. And then the, and then when you said Schumer in terms of funding, when does that go to the floor? That's the Taylor Force. That will be coming up, we hope. All right. So sometime in the next few days, right? Not weeks away, but days away. Well, we don't know how the exact schedule works. You know, you have inauguration coming up. You have other things. So, oh, so could the wait. fact is that it's moving ahead is, is what's important. Understood. And Lindsey Graham is the primary proponent behind it. Understood. All right. Um... So now we go to the uh, we go to the uh, president elect and see that you know he he's been very very active over the last few days to say the least and we wonder um, you know I'm thinking back to 1980 you'll recall in 1980 or more accurately January 20th 1981 the there was an intimidation factor where the Iranian leadership thought that Ronald Reagan would behave a certain way so they changed their tone a bit. I, I'm, I'm sure you remember what I'm referring to. So now I wonder, is there a way for Donald Trump, the president-elect, to wh- whether there is an official rescinding or not of the Iran uh, Iran bill, um, it, it, the Iran deal, is there a way for him at the, at the very beginning of his administration to set things up where he could strike some fear in the Iranians? Absolutely, and I think he already has. If uh, people will look at the Iran currency, it's hit an all-time low, a record low against the, the dollar. I think it's 41500 to the dollar. In September, it was 35000 and the uh, inflow of foreign funds in, uh, has, has been much smaller this, this past year than they expected uh, because the banks fear running into U.S. legal trouble if they deal with Iran, and now even more because they think the new administration may be tougher and uh, stands up against Iran in ways they haven't. We know that the economic conditions throughout the country are very bad, and there's growing resentment and dissatisfaction uh, with them. They continue the same bravado. I saw Valiati of the Expediency Council 
who's very close to, to Khamenei, uh, has talked about their continuing to support the anti-Israel resistance, and he cited how they have now the presence and the resistance front that goes from Iraq to Syria to Lebanon to, the Palest- to Palestine, and of course Hamas and Hezbollah, uh, which we've talked about, but you see that how they uh, see the map and uh, um, they are also uh, talking about uh, the big deals, but when you look at in more detail, you see a lot of them are not being fulfilled. The, the British Petroleum, I think, pulled out of the deal that they uh, uh, signed. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of leverage that the uh, president-elect will have, has. I yeah. think already now we're seeing it in various ways. Giving expre- being expressed, including regarding the Paris uh, conference that's coming up. And um, uh, I hope that, and, and there are ways to undo some of the impact, including increased sanctions, and mostly in the banking area. That is what really makes the difference and has the maximum leverage. And to show we're not going to tolerate them running, playing havoc with our, our ships in the in the Persian Gulf, they're right. expanding their footprint throughout the region, and and, the, and their aggressiveness, including and and I think sec, uh, the new incoming head of the Homeland Security will be very strong about their activities in in uh, South America, for instance, where he was he was the head of the Southern Command. And we just saw in Venezuela, just an aside, but it's very important when you talk about and forgive people understanding why we are uh, always so strong about the issue of Iran's aggressive behavior. They, they just appointed a vice president who was the, the choice of Iran, essentially, and the, this guy, uh, Anif Madura, the current president, who is, has really bad legal problems, if he gets uh, knocked out, then the the process will lead to the uh, election of president, who is a, um, a, a, a puppet, essentially, they say, of, of Iran. And uh, it's one of the many manifestations, but here you see where you could have a man who has had a long history of direct association with Iran and Iran's role within uh, South America, within Venezuela, uh, where you've seen, by the way, an increase in Aliyah. It's not dramatic, but it's been steady uh, increase and others uh, leaving the country as well. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio exclusively around the world at NahumSiegel.com, the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on our beloved NSN app. Uh, well, I was going to ask you about that because I saw you posted the article about the uh, the exodus from Venezuela. In general, was it always among the smaller uh, South American Jewish communities? Well, it had a much larger community, but uh, many of them left. Uh, there are still thousands uh, of people. Uh, the, the community is estimated between six and 9,000 still there. It's a country of, what, 30 million people. Right. Um, and they uh, uh, are leaving. But you should know that they... That, uh, Venezuela, I think, is number three in the asylum cases coming to the United States. And when you realize that you have the infiltration of, of many people who are coming from Middle East backgrounds to to Venezuela because of uh, the Iranian involvement and the, the fact that we know Hezbollah has long been active there, that they could well be training people to infiltrate the United States, being given documents by the Venezuelan government. So the seriousness of, of uh, the question there and the the um, Jewish community can't sell their properties. They're almost worthless. The, as you know, there are long lines for food. 
uh, the situation there is is really quite desperate. So just back to the other point for a moment when it comes to Iran and my question regarding President-elect Trump, not on the military side. I understand that's a separate issue and there is an intimidation factor that has to be implemented. But on the economic side, he doesn't really have to strike fear in the Iranians. All he has to do is continue to strike fear in these companies. As long as, long as they refuse to deal with Iran because they don't know what the future holds, then it, the, the, Iran's going to you know feel it in their pocketbook. Well, the companies uh, have been reluctant, and although we read about some of the big deals, you don't know that they're actually consummated or fully delivered. We have to see whether that really happens or not, and in many cases it doesn't, and that's why the flow of foreign funds has been much smaller than what one would believe based upon the public pronouncements. Uh, it doesn't mean that they haven't gotten tens of billions of dollars. We know right. that they have. They're just, they've been able to sell oil on the open market again, but the price of oil is not at a level which it, it makes an, uh, the money that it wants to from uh, the export, and also there's a glut on the market, so they they don't have um, the sales. But but you know, in this regard and in regard to the BDS and the boycott of Israel, the there is a very strong legislation. We have more legislation that's going to be introduced to, to tell companies you cannot join, you cannot participate in these things. They will be exposed if they do, be subject to fines and and uh, punishments. And I think. The uh, the words of the president-elect and the uh, works of the perhaps the new secretaries of treasury and others will give greater credence to it. Although I have to say that there are members of the Department of the Treasury who, for the last eight years, have really done incredible work. Stuart Levy, Dave Cohen, Adam Zubin, uh, who are really devoted and and uh, took the lead in in implementing these. Uh, the sanctions against Iran. Hmm, interesting. All right, I have to assume that you were not shocked when you heard this morning's story about the Israeli spy satellite discovering a, a, a secret Russian missile cache in Syria. I, I would assume that you were not surprised to hear that. We were, we, we were always surprised <laughs> <laughs> by everything that seems to come up these days, but um, certainly not pleasantly surprised. And the question is where it was headed. And if it's, in fact, uh, the Russians uh, playing a role in, in seeing to it that, um, that these weapons, which uh, find their way to, the, uh, to Hezbollah, which has a huge presence today and played a key role in all the battles around uh, Damascus and, and others, uh, other fights that are going on uh, in Syria and continues to play a, a big role there, uh, along with the you know besieges and the other the militias that uh, are, are backed by Iran, uh, certainly it gives greater um, concern about the presence of these weapons, what the intent was, what kind of controls there are over them. All right, so I guess we're going to follow that situation very closely, right? <laughs> Absolutely, uh, that's for yeah. sure. Uh, the, the whole Russian Syria that that is really a news item that seems to change every week in terms of the Russian-Syrian relationship and where, you know, the influence that, that each one is having uh, in the Middle East. And, and we should note that, because I saw this on a story that you posted, that essentially at this point it's agreed that the Syrian ceasefire uh, has, has basically crumbled at this point? It, it, it's hard to know whether it actually really held sway at any time, but it certainly uh, is crumbling, and you see that the uh, criticisms and the uh, the resur resurgent fighting that uh, goes on. Um, so they, um, uh, that's why we posted these stories that people in the right. Daily Alert, right. uh, dailyalert.org, for those who are wondering what you're referring to. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, yes, and I, I'm saying to you that these, 
it is important because we should know that it isn't always the way the press reports it or one could read into the press reports that things are calm and quiet there and uh, and so many of the important stories that that don't get uh, the message doesn't get out uh, and especially about things I saw that uh, the 180 shooting attacks on the West Bank were prevented. Nobody is going to, uh, the Daily Alert covered it, but you see in the general press, when they're talking about violence, they talk about it as if it's equal on both sides, when in fact, of course, we all know it, it isn't true, but the general public may not know that it isn't, it isn't true. And uh, the interesting thing with the Russians, by the way, is that they schedule talks between Hamas and Fatah, and they have you know, often advocated reconciliation between them, but they scheduled them for January 15th, which is the same day as the Paris conference yep. coming up, the infamous Paris conference. Yeah. Uh, the infamous Paris conference that you certainly, I, I shouldn't even say alluded, I think you were pretty more direct than an allusion last week to the fact that the U.S. is not going to take any drastic action against Israel in the last week of the Obama administration. You're still- oh, I said that they won't go to the Security Council, but I do believe that it's possible, and I've seen some of the... Pu- uh, draft documents for it, that there will be a communique that will be reinforcing of the Kerry principles, reinforcing the resolution of the Security Council, using that language, which would be very disturbing, and we are fighting it, and also the meeting of the quartet, where the same things could take place. So the, I don't believe the Russians want to enshrine Kerry's principle. They don't want to give him more credit than uh, than before. And by the way, when we're talking about Syria, it came out that there are, are thousands, maybe even 10,000 Palestinians who have formed groups that are fighting in Aleppo for the regime and supporting uh, the regime. Again, something that generally they're not, people don't publish and don't talk about, you know, the role that they're playing in, in this conflict. But the, the Paris conference, which to which now 70 countries have been invited, uh, this is Hollande, the president's big hurrah, because he's going out of office with the elections that are taking place this spring. Uh, and the the question is whether certain people will attend, whether Secretary Kerry will go, will they, will they live up to the promise they made, which I believe they will, that they won't go to the Security Council because I don't think they need to. I mm-hmm. think that there are other ways that uh, they can get the the uh, principles or parameters uh, established. It could be that they, that they will go further and talk about what uh, limits there are to what Israel can aspire to or try to talk about the conditions or what a final map or other things. That could uh, happen. Again, I don't believe, I believe right now the reaction to the Kerry speech was so negative mm. and to the UN vote much right. more so than I think they anticipated. Right. Good point. Um, all right. So either way though, you have a very busy week ahead. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you'll, never quiet you'll, you'll be revising language all through the day, every single day. Uh, all right, let's do a little bit on Israel because there are a lot of issues that people are insisting we speak about and they're hundred percent right. First of all, the, uh, the manslaughter charge and the conviction of Elora Zarya I don't know what more you can say about this case compared to what you said back in March and April when this became, you know, such a hot issue when the episode occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, more. Yeah, there is not much more. I mean, we, we know that democracy, and that's something we should be proud of, democracy spoke, right? This was a this was a trial, an, I, an IDF Army trial, correct? Yes, and and the military court, which, which are known for their independence and the uh, judicious way they go about things. This wasn't a kangaroo trial. It wasn't uh, but none rushed. The, but nonetheless, those... But there is a context also. I mean, right. we know the situation, and that's why when you cite 
all of the attacks that people don't know about, how much these soldiers put up with every day uh, in terms of the, and, and, and this is only in the West Bank, I'm not talking about all of those that took place and, and actually got carried out and the number of car rammings and all the other things that go on that these young soldiers have to face every day. Well, that's why so many of us are hoping, and I don't even know if this is possible, maybe you could speak to this, I don't know what your expertise is in this area, but but we are hoping that there's at least an understanding that when sentencing occurs, uh, th- there's some degree of leniency. There's some degree of understanding that uh, that the, that the sent- I don't even want to use the word lighter, it should not be as severe as a regular case of manslaughter. Is there is there room for that still before sentencing officially occurs in February? Well, there's always room for it, and the, the judges, I'm sure, will take everything into account. That the, uh, you know, it, it, the circumstances as described um, are, are what are the, are the basis on which the the judges are are acting. But you see that popular sentiment, and even in the Knesset and other places, there's a great deal of sympathy, obviously, for him. And and from and, some and, members of Knesset, you'd never expect it from. And yes, and I think that, uh, and yet on the other hand, others are saying you cannot ignore the rule of law and, and just uh, dismiss it. So we hope that uh, you know justice is tempered with mercy and understanding, and uh, the message is sent. I think very clearly by them that you know they don't tolerate this. But on the other hand, the circumstances of you know these young guys facing yeah. very yeah. difficult uh, conditions. Yep. Yeah. And maybe it has to be better screening. Maybe it has to be other things done that the army lessons the army has to to learn or does learn each time. But you know, there are very few armies that have to face what they face every day, and uh, the restraint that they demonstrate is really remarkable. And there are very few armies that have to face a democratic system once the episode is over. A, a very volatile one that makes everything political. Yeah. And that, uh, as we see how the judiciary becomes involved in, in the political circumstances, uh, almost on a daily basis. The uniqueness of the state of Israel just continues to... Uh, but the democracy flourishes, yeah. the rule of law continues. Understood. All right, people wanted your comments about the uh, declassification of the MNI children documents. Uh, uh, any Anything to say about the uh, what Benjamin Netanyahu made sure to accomplish uh, uh, last week? Yes, they lived up to it. They released the documents. The, there were no. There wasn't what they called a smoking gun about the deliberate uh, campaign or being able to follow it. But it's a tragic uh, chapter. There's still many unanswered uh, questions. Hadar Golden Aron Shaul. Um, one of the things their parents have not done is really taken to the streets and encouraged others to do the same to have their bodies recovered um from the enemy and uh i i i think most would agree that because there hasn't been this public outcry that they've led um they've been ignored to a degree uh it's a fine line because you know a lot of times uh families do not want to go ahead and take to the streets and and create a national situation and put the prime minister under pressure like that does this issue ever come up i mean you're in israel constantly and you're in the knesset all the time is this an issue at all when it comes to uh, uh those who are uh um, you know, bodies of those who have been uh, uh, apprehended and killed by the enemy, you know, in a, in a war. In a it war comes took- up all the time. Uh, we are in touch with the Golden family. They have conducted a, a very effective campaign. The problem here is that Hamas is not subject to pressure of demonstrations or boycotts. They don't care. They don't care what happens to the people of Gaza, obviously. They're the ones who are torturing them, and they 
hold back the return, and even if it means that their bodies don't come back and that Israel, you know, withheld the withdraw the giving back of of the bodies of terrorists uh, and stopped it. Now, wasn't the negotiation and, for Gilad Shalit with Hamas? Or am I wrong? Of was course that, it was. It, no, I'm saying it was. So the, yes, the, and so, we paid so, a very, very heavy price of 1,200 reliefs, some of whom have been recidivists or many, and uh, the public opinion on it was very mixed. But Israel does everything to get back and he was alive. a live, right, a he live was alive, soldier. Right. And here, right. uh, you know, Israel believes that they, they are not alive. There are two people they're holding um, uh, and uh, under other circumstances. And the, the, so, the you know, this is such a delicate and difficult thing. And the prime minister... As one in the past told me, you know, we have to face it every day. I walk out of my office, I walk into my home, there are people there protesting, and I see their families, I see somebody related to them. It's not something we can ignore. The problem here is that Israel doesn't have much bargaining power, and the question is, what price do you pay uh, for it, and and does it endanger people in, in the future? But Israel... I know continues on this. I, as you know, because it was public, uh, asked President Erdogan, who has these close ties to Hamas, and he promised me and said it in front of the president's conference delegation and subsequently that he was working on it. And he said to me, don't worry, I didn't forget Khadar Golden. Uh, he actually uh, said that. Meeting. Yes, he actually used his name and wow. uh, unprompted said it to me. All right, well, well, call a vote to you. No, you're you're it, keeping it on the agenda. Call a vote call, to you. Call a vote to the Golden Family and yep. those who have paid the price. I mean, we're just sleeping that uh, do our our job, but those are the people who really deserve the credit or the, the sacrifice, and and to the young people who serve. And finally, um, yes. So, um, uh, what's his name? John Kirby, right? State Department. That's his name, I believe. Yes, the Say, spokesman. Right. So he says that uh, it would be a bad idea and would put American lives in danger, et cetera, et cetera. If the State Department approved of a move of the embassy to Jerusalem, I, I would love to know because you wore, you you sort of alluded to this uh, over the last few weeks that that you know it should be. You, I think your position has been it should be done, but let's just realize you know what complications could arise from it being done. Um, what do you think? I mean, do you, is it still something that you, as a, as a leader in this area, uh, you would go ahead and advocate for, would you, would you want to, uh, hold the president's feet to the fire, the president elect's feet to the fire and have the embassy move to Jerusalem at this point? Well, I don't think he needs his feet held to the fire. It looks like his feet are moving pretty quickly in this direction. <laughs> <laughs> so, and certainly the new ambassador feels very strongly about it. And, and look, you know that. Uh, I was responsible largely with, together with Senator Moynihan for getting the right. 1995 Jerusalem Embassy Act passed. Is there so any downside? My position you, on this is very clear. The only thing is that you always do it with Seichel, that you can. I think that there are ways that it can be done that it will be less confrontational. You don't want to have loss of life or threats or other things. And, All right. And, so if done properly, you, you would say a yes or no question, there's no downside. If I asked you if there was a downside, if it's done properly, you would say no. I'm saying that it can be done the right way. Of course, there will be a downside. There will be criticism. There will be reaction. But you know what? It's time to tell the Palestinians that West Jerusalem is part of Israel no matter what. So this is not an embassy in East Jerusalem. So those who to say that we are, that this is changing the status, it's, it's just a lie. It's not true. Uh, this is something that Israel has had the same capital since its founding. And the... the um, uh, uh, 
you know, the failure to, to move the embassy is is not Israel's failure. It's the countries that, that don't want to recognize or make themselves subject to this pressure. It won't change the outcome of what they call the two-state solution or what they call one-state solution or any solution uh, by having uh, an embassy. And you can have, you already have two consulates in Jerusalem. If one of them would have a sign on it that here's the uh, office of the ambassador as well, Again, I don't think it should be done in a confrontational way. I think it has to be done intelligently, and and uh, I think you can help minimize the, the reaction to it. But I think the statements of the president-elect on this have been pretty clear. Yeah, that's true. All right, uh, we will recap. Oh, by the way, I just I, I I don't often I don't often do programming notes with you on, but I just want everyone to realize because they're going to be interested if they're listening right now. Mayor Weingarten is preparing for nine o'clock Monday morning a segment called "Lies That My Secretary of State Told Me." <laughs> he's preparing a segment on that, analyzing the entire speech. And you know, he does a pretty good job at that stuff. So people... Ariel Tours has its own Secretary of State. <laughs> they certainly do. <laughs> they follow the same one we do. So I well, want... next week we'll do it, God willing, from Israel, and I'll be able to give you a first-hand oh. front account about where things uh, stand. Uh, God willing, I hope it will work out that we can do it. All right, we certainly will. And uh, I think one thing, one one last thing quickly, and that is that during Hanukkah, I don't know how many people watch, but again, when you're looking at all the tsarists and all the bad things, and literally we worked around the clock two weekends in a row, uh, right from uh, before Shabbat till, and right after Shabbat, straight through the holidays uh, and the days off, which we didn't get. Um, but there were hikers, spelunkers, who were going through caves and in the in the lower uh, the Judean lowlands and near Ashkelon, and they they found in a cave the carving of a seven-branched menorah. As you know, we use an eight-branch on Hanukkah, right. but the, in the base of Mikdash, they had a seven-branch with three legs that goes back to the period of the of the second base of Mikdash. They say, and there was also a cross there that was done much later, but. Uh, this the ancient depiction of a menorah in a cave, and it was kept intact because of the climactic conditions there. It was um, in perfect shape, and they, it was easily discernible. And it's the it's the, I think the second or third time in a cave that they, they've ever found a menorah. Um, and uh, so this is not far from uh, Kiryat Gat. Uh, that the, this uh, was found during Hanukkah. And just by chance, because of the of these guys who who wandered into them, and as they check out the caves in the region, so we wonder what else they're going to find. But there's a lot of story behind it that we'll have to do some other time. All right, thank you so much for a wonderful Shabbos and a good trip. We'll speak next week. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.